Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University. And here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to interview number 16 in our regular series of Meet the Education Researcher. My name is Neil Selwyn and I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of this podcast is simple. We're going to spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by Jane Wilkinson, a professor in the faculty. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Neil. So heaps to talk about, but first, your faculty profile describes you as working in the area of educational leadership for social justice with a particular focus on issues of gender and ethnicity. Now, those are four huge areas to be tackling. So number one, why are these issues that you feel need to be brought together? And number two, how are you actually managing to bring them together? I mean, I think, you know, there's there's certainly a strong and powerful tradition in educational um, leadership research around leadership for social justice. And so in, particularly in um, Australia, I think we've had a very... Um, a very powerful group of scholars working in this area over a couple of generations, Richard Bates, Jill Blackmore, uh, people like that who've been really groundbreaking in this area. And I was fortunate to be supervised by Jill Blackmore, who's also a wonderful feminist scholar. Um, And um, so, you know, why? Well, I think, you know, particularly in these times, but in, in any era really, Um, We know that the role of leaders, educational leaders, and particularly, for example, principals is absolutely crucial in um, building the kinds of enabling conditions that are necessary to support young people and to ensure that they um, uh, fulfil their academic and social potential. And so how how they do that and how they do that in the myriad of contexts and the diversity of populations that exist in schools, um, it's not, I I wouldn't say it's a black box and there are certainly... um, there's certainly a, a growing body of evidence around around the work that good principals can do. But nonetheless, I think there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. Um, I think the second part of that question was around... Um, How you've actually managed to bring them together. Well, I began... Uh, Actually, my PhD, I I looked at women leaders from different ethnic and class backgrounds in senior leadership positions in universities in Australia. And and the reason I did that was because um, for myself, I I come from an ed leadership background. So like many educational people, I was in the Victorian Department of Education as a teacher. And then I eventually became a deputy principal in a very, um, in a rural uh, conservative monocultural area of Victoria and I was the youngest deputy principal and I suspect I was probably the only one from a non-Anglo background so despite my very Anglo name um, my mother was um, an Israeli Jew and her family originally came from Eastern Europe in the 1880s to settle in Palestine as Zionists so mum came to Australia at the age of 20 speaking no English so I was kind of the bicultural kid that wrote the the shopping lists in English for my mum mm. uh, after my parents divorced and did all those sorts of things so um, so I suppose I was particularly aware of of issues um, coming from a very working class poor background uh, education issues and the difference a good education can make um, so when I became an educational leader with with a, a, a particular authority role in my region I was I guess I was very confronted by the fact that there were very few women leaders in those roles and particularly there were also very few people from any kind of diverse background apart from um, Anglo-Saxon and I became interested in that and as a PhD student when I actually looked at what the kind of demographic composition was of educational leaders it's extremely clear that educational leadership at least in this country and certainly in places like the USA 
and um, Canada is coated white and it's co and it's very Anglo-centric. Uh, and that's actually not getting any better, despite the fact that we have increasingly diverse student populations. Mm. And so um, I selected the university sector because, to be quite frank, I really wanted to look at this intersectionality. And um, when Jill and I sat down and looked across the schooling sector, we found so few women principals and so few of them who came from anything other than Anglo backgrounds that we actually went to the university sector because it actually had bigger numbers of women leaders and bigger number of women leaders from different ethnic backgrounds in particular. So intersectionality is a big kind of oh, buzzword no, at the moment, huge. but yeah. I guess when we were doing your PhD, it yeah. wasn't so, I mean, you kind no. of hit it just at the right time. Yeah, I did. It was. It's actually really interesting because um, I didn't... I guess I didn't go in, you know, specifically thinking uh, around, you know, uh, intersectionality because I really don't think that was something that was even being talked about yeah. at the time. But it just struck me as someone who came with a critical feminist background that when I read the feminist literature, I just thought there's this is there's this assumption, there's just this silenced norm, this assumption that leadership is around women and the notion of women is is incredibly homogenised. It's essentialist. No one's unpacked this. No one's actually mm. talked about things like ethnicity and how that then intersects with gender. And so, for example, when I did the interviews with women, um, and I can, I can say this openly because she gave me permission, I did an interview with Pat O'Shane, who was the first um, um, Indigenous female and Indigenous magistrate in New South Wales and the head of the um, uh, Equal Opportunity Commission in New South Wales, but she was also the Vice-Chancellor of University of New England. Um, now, she's an extraordinary figure, but she and the other Indigenous woman leader that I um, interviewed both talked about the fact that being Indigenous was actually a huge plus. It was mm. a huge asset in the university sector. It was their gender that was the problem. And so for different women, depending on their class, and class and ethnic background, so I interviewed women from Greek and Italian working class backgrounds who were very senior in the university sector, and they said for them being, and this is a quote from these women, being a WOG and a working class WOG was a real problem in the university mm. sector. So it was both about their ethnicity and their class background. So, you know, the, the, it's really quite fascinating. It was really interesting to try and start to unpack that. And so listening to those quotations and listening mm -hmm. to your own biography, I'm beginning to kind of work out why is it that Australia has particularly got this kind of critical social justice focus mm -hmm. on school leadership mm -hmm. when, say, scholars in the UK and perhaps the US are, are less likely to engage with these issues. I mean, it's really interesting when you look at the history of scholarship in ed leadership, particularly around um, social justice, in the, and perhaps not surprising, in the USA, it's very much focused around race. Mm. But when they talk about race, they tend to talk about African-Americans. And so where are First Nations people? And I, I mean, I made that point. I was, I was giving a, a presentation at the American Educational Research Association this year, and it was a whole panel of illustrious scholars around educational leadership for scholar social justice. And I began with an acknowledgement of country. I, I don't think they'd ever heard anyone do that before. I was going to say, how did that go down? Oh, well, I mean, I think they were quite fascinated and, and a little <laughs> astonished as well. Um, but I think it just hadn't occurred to them because, you know, again, so, and, and understandably because of US history, the focus on race and African-Americans is very understandable, but I think it needs to be broadened. The UK, again, perhaps understandable because of its history, is very much around class. Mm. You know, class, and again, I understand why that's the case, whereas I think Australia is an interesting melange. We are highly multicultural. 
Um, we do have a class system and unfortunately it's becoming increasingly entrenched, but nonetheless it still doesn't have the same resonance, if you like, as it does in the UK. And so um, I think in some ways that's given us the space, if you like, as a post-colonial nation to understand and be able to embrace and, and see the kind of different, um, the nexus between these different sort of social factors. Yeah, it's fascinating coming mm. from the UK and I see Ed leadership as the Belmass Conference mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. men in suits who are mm -hmm. very, very grey. In fact, the first time I went to the Belmass Conference in 2008, it was exactly that. Um, but in fact, I went to the Belmass Conference last year and it had changed. There you are. And yeah. there were still lots of men in suits, but there were a lot more younger people, there are a lot more women and there are a lot more um, men and women from different ethnic black backgrounds. And that was fantastic. It was such a change. So that was in nine years. Yeah. It yeah. had, or eight years, it had really shifted. Well, I shall, um, yeah, reconceptualize my view of the field. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about theory. I know you use, you use Bourdieu a lot, but mm -hmm. you also use Ted Shatsky's, not a name yes. I've come across. So could no. you kind of explain to me how you came across Shatsky's sure. work? When I was at my previous university, Charles Sturt University, for many years, um, I worked with Professor Stephen Chemis, who um, people might know of as a guru of action research. Um, but Stephen and I and a group of, of researchers um, were, well, really, we formed a network, a research network around practice theory. And we were really interested in exploring different kinds of practice theory and um, developing, if you like, a, a theory around practice, our, our own theory around practice. So, I mean, of course, I brought the Bourdieuian scholarship, and I, th I still think that has huge resonance for, for the work we do. But one of the philosophers we looked at and became really engaged with was Ted Shartsky, who's an American practice philosopher. Uh, and he's written extensively about the, the practice turn in theory. And he, ha he has a concept around what he calls site ontology. So it's a kind of ontological understanding, if you like, of practice. And it's very much a, an understanding of practice around the notion of um, looking at practices as they are um, enacted in the site. So he's, he very much focuses on the particularities of the site and that's quite different, I think, if you think about Bourdieu and you think about, you know, Bourdieu is talking about those kind of broader social structures where Shartsky is actually saying you need to look at the practices and how they are enacted through different kinds of um, cultural discursive uh, material. Like, we, we would call them cultural discursive material, economic and social political um, arrangements that hold particular practices in sight and, and, and if you like, silence or marginalise other practices. So I actually have found it a really, um, the thing, I love Bourdieu and I love his work and I've loved using his theories around habitus and field and capital, but I actually found this the notion of looking at and, and the language around practices in, in, specific, in specific sites and thinking about what are the cultural discursive, the, the material economic and the social political arrangements that, that do hold particular kinds of practices in, 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 in place are really kind of, it's lovely, it's fruitful, mm. and it allows you to, to really kind of unpack things like policy settings and how they're being played out to look at the sort of uh, resources, if you like, that are enabling certain kinds of practices to, you know, leading practices to, to be enacted. Uh, and teaching practices and a range of different practices. And also what does that mean in terms of the social, social political arrangements, the, the power relations between people and between people, if you like, and, and objects or 
you know, non non material. Yeah. The material, if you like. I was going to say that theory sounds like it would push you into all sorts of different methodological directions. Yes. The materiality, in particular. I mean, have you found yourself engaging more with material yes. stuff? Yes. Yeah. Look, definitely. And I mean, I, I should be doing some more reading. And like all academics, I beat myself up about the readings that I'm not doing, but I know that I should be doing. But I mean, there's certainly, of course, there are people like Latour and like that who you know have got really interesting theories. I think around practice. Um, and I am I am reading some some stuff. So one of the things our research network does is we read, and we have a reading group, and we meet every six weeks to two months, and we have a set of readings, and we we have been engaging with um, people like uh, Davida Nicolini has written a really nice book around practice, and that's been a useful one to kind of look at and engage with. Elizabeth Shove has just done a really nice one. So we've been looking at sort of her work around practice. But in terms of methods, so so for so for me, for example, one of the things around practices and the question is around how do you observe a practice such as teaching. Mm. So we had a three-year Australian Research um, Council um, grant where we were looking at, it was called Leading and Learning, Developing Ecologies of Practice. And so we were trying to denaturalise the practice of teaching. So when you go in, you know, it's very hard for us, particularly for me as an educator, to walk into a classroom and not just take for granted what it is that yeah, I yeah. see there. So if you use a theory like practice, what we, we developed called practice architectures, which is based on Shatsky's notion of site ontologies, you know, we, we had lots of discussions around how do we kind of look at practice in a way that doesn't take for granted what's going on. Using that conceptual lens I've just talked about was really helpful because then it meant you looked around the classroom and as you're sitting there taking notes, for example, it might be that you're saying, well, you know, what, what are the discourses that I'm hearing being spoken in, into being? What are the kinds of arrangements of the layout of the classroom and the, the resources that are around the room? And what does that then tell us about what are we seeing in terms of power relations between the teacher and the child, between the children themselves, uh, etc. So, I mean, in, in that that was actually a useful thing to help us to, to yeah, take yeah. a step back, if you like, so from it's, it. So it's well. using theory to make the familiar strange. Exactly. Now, that all sounds, you sound incredibly self-assured and confident and, you know, <laughs> anyone listening to this is going to think that you're all over it. I've just got one final question to ask you because you are the dean of the kind of doctoral students yes. as well. I'm just wondering, do you remember back to the day that you got your PhD? Mm. And I mean, looking back now, mm. what's the one piece of career advice that you'd want to give yourself at that stage of starting out? Okay, this is going to sound really awful, and uh, but I'm going to be very pragmatic and very strategic. And I would say, find yourself some decent mentors and don't ask what can the mentor give to me only, but what can I give back? I mean, the reality is, to be quite frank, and I'm being very political here, but universities operate like medieval fiefdoms and finding a great mentor who can support you, who can introduce you to good people is really helpful and uh, help, they help you to build your research networks. Now, of course, you can make it on your own, but the reality is there are two th keys to success. One is you do really good work and two is that you have connections and networks that allow your good work to be recognised and brought into a space. So you attend conferences, you email people that you think are really good value beforehand, that you look up on the program and you say, here's something I'm writing, love your work, really interested, can we have a coffee? So, you, you know, they're mm. the ways you build up your networks and you start to get to know people. But there'll be people in your field that may well be fantastic mentors for you and I'd be seeking them out and I wouldn't just be expecting them to do for you, I'd also be, you know, what is it I can bring for you as well. So, and also they may not be in your faculty. Exactly, and that's why I'm saying that because, I mean, for me the reality was I worked in a faculty that had no one else in ed leadership for 12 years. 
I had a question in my mind when Stephen Chemist, who was the guru I talked about, sent an email out. I was still doing my PhD and he said, you know, I'd like to have a coffee with people who are interested in talking about practice. He'd just started there. And I thought, well, why would I talk with him? Because, you know, this isn't necessarily exactly what I'm doing. And then I thought, you know what, he's a guru in his field and he actually might be a really good person to get to know. And it was the most valuable cup of coffee I've ever had in my yeah. life. <laughs> and look where you are now. But, you know, you can do that by going to conferences, by visiting scholarships, getting a sabbatical, looking at who are the people you really admire in your field. Go out and visit them. And I find actually my scholars are incredibly generous and if you're in genuinely interested in their work and you're doing good work and you can share that with them, they, they will open their hearts to you and Absolutely. their minds. I'm, I'm glad you said doing good work as well because mm. that is the prerequisite. It's absolutely to, crucial. Yeah, People yeah. just keep saying, oh, you know, but like they, I understand you, you're looking for a mentor and someone to support you and everything, but you do need to be doing good work and that means you do need to read widely and you do need to go to conferences and you need to talk to people and you need to see what's happening and you need to, you know, it's all of those sorts of things mm. that help to inform you um, and get your work out there. God, you've reminded me that I've got loads to be getting on with that. So. Oh, look, we all have. <laughs> you, you're, not, you're not the only one. <laughs> well, fantastic. Thanks ever so much for taking the time no, to talk, Shane. It's been pleasure. really good to have an opportunity to talk things, yeah. talk about things of substance for Indeed. once. Indeed. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Neil.